gospel is not just a once a year celebration. It is the reason that we have come together to worship today, but it is not just today. The resurrection gospel is the reason that we live life the way we do. It is the reason that we are and the reason that we exist. It is everything in us, through us, and by us. The resurrection gospel is the one who has redeemed our past gives peace in our present and hope for our future to come. It is the reason that we're excited and the reason we celebrate the gospel because it's not just what Christ did for us, it's what He's doing for us now and what He's going to do for us in the future to come. And the resurrection gospel is the message that Paul makes so clear in 1 Corinthians 15, and that's where we're going to be this morning it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at the beginning of it and then at the end of it. And so if you've got your Bibles, you want to go ahead and turn to it. Because what Paul is going to make clear to us is the resurrection gospel, the gospel itself, is not centered on what you think. It's not centered on what you believe. It is not centered on what you feel. It is centered on two historical facts. Whether you receive them or reject them that way or not is up to you. But these events, these historical events, change everything. And so I want to go ahead and jump in the text this morning. We'll take communion as we work through the text. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to read the first four verses. And then we'll jump down to verse 54 and read the last four verses. So verse uh, 1 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also being saved by it. Or excuse me, you're also saved by it. If you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. For I pass on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that He was buried and He was raised again on the third day, According to the scripture. Then we want to skip over just for time's sake to verse 54 and read through the end of the verse. Verse 54 says, When this corrupted is clothed with incorruptibility, when this mortal is clothed with immortality, and then is the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray together. God, I am praying that your Holy Spirit is so present in this place, God, that we cannot deny it. God, I'm praying that we can feel it here with us. God, that we can sense it in our spirit, that we are united with you. God, I'm praying that we are aware of your goodness this morning. A goodness that paid for our redemption. A goodness that paid for us when we turned our back on you. A goodness that hung on a cross even when we spit on you and despised you and cursed at you. God, yet you died for us. God, let us be aware of your goodness this morning. God, not just in your death, but in your resurrection this morning. It is the gospel. It is the good news, both for our past and our present and our future to come. And so, God, I pray this morning that you are clear in your message, that the words that I speak are clear to bring the gospel to life. God, I pray above all else this morning that those that are sitting in this room and those that are watching online, 
God, that we receive the words that you have this morning. God, that we will be steadfast and immovable because of the victory that you have given us. And God, that we will leave this place ready to do your work and to labor for you because of what you have done for us, Father. God, let us feel your goodness in this time. Let us be just so aware of the presence that you are here, God, because of what you have done for us. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As a pastor, one of the things I get to do is I get to sit down with folks and couples that are kind of going through rough times in their life. And uh, sometimes they're just things that pop up in difficult times. And uh, I've discovered that when couples or individuals come in to my office and they need to kind of talk things through, they need to work things through, there's kind of like two mainly branches of people, right? There's lots of different types of people, but there's two kind of extremes. There's one type of extreme that are really kind of guarded when they come in. Like they, they, they want to come in, they want to sit down and talk, but they're really guarded at the information they're going to give you. They're not going to give you everything, okay? So they're going to withhold stuff, and some people do that for very intentional reasons. They're going to come in, they're going to start talking, maybe, maybe not, but they're going to to leave stuff out of the story, and they're going to do that maybe for intentional reasons, because they know if they tell you the whole story, then it makes them look bad. If they tell you the whole story, then, then it, you won't agree with their voice or their opinion in the argument between them and their husband or them and their wife. And so there's some people that are going to leave out part of the story for a very intentional reason because they don't like how it makes them look or they don't like how it makes them feel or they don't like telling the whole story. There's other people that are going to leave out parts of the story, but they're going to do it unintentionally. Right? They're not doing it to guard and say that I don't want you to see this part of the story. They're just not going to see the connection between how this part of the story connects with this part of the story. And so they're going to leave out this part because they just came to talk to you about this. And they don't see how this is the result of this over here. They don't see the connection between these two stories. And so when those folks are in my office, I end up having to ask a lot of questions. I end up having to, to ask them, you know, well, why do you think this is the situation? Why do you think, how do you think we got to this point? And because what I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to get them to, to, to get to the essential parts of the story, to get to the parts that, that, that you have to know all of it to get to the part where you can give them advice, to give them some help. And then there's other folks that are on the other end of the extreme. So you got folks that come in my office and they're very guarded. They don't want to talk at all. And then you have the other folks that come in my office. And they sit down in that chair and they will start talking. And they will talk. And they will talk. And they will talk a lot. All right? And they will tell you 10 examples of this and 15 examples of this. And they'll tell you about what happened in their marriage like 15 years ago from their ex-marriage. And then they're going to tell you like stories from their childhood. And I sit there and I listen to all these stories. And I'm like, wait, I don't even know why you came in here anymore. Like, I'm so confused at all this extra stuff that you've piled into this situation, and I'm confused now. And so for those folks, what they've done is they've really overcomplicated one situation by adding in all this extra stuff to it. They piled on all this extra stuff that's not essential to what they came in the office for. And so as I'm sitting down, and oddly enough, some of you probably have experienced this, what happens most often is that when it's a couple that's in my office, one of them is the first type and the other is the other type, all right? I don't know if that's your mayor. Don't nudge your wife or husband right now, right? But that's usually what it is, that one is very guarded and they're not going to say anything and the other one's going to give it all out there, okay? They're going to add in all this extra stuff, overcomplicate the situation. And so when I'm sitting down with these couples, what my job is is to bring clarity to their situation, right? I just need to get to the essentials because if we did that, then chances are we wouldn't be sitting here. 
If we could just get to the basics and the essentials of what this situation was, then it probably wouldn't be a situation at all. If we could get to what is most important without leaving any parts out or without adding anything to it, then we would have what we needed right there. And so that's exactly what Paul is doing when he reaches chapter 15 of the book of 1 Corinthians. You see, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing, he wants to bring clarity to the gospel. And he's going to tell us very clearly the gospel is two things. It has two parts to it. It cannot have less than two parts because if you leave out one of these two parts, you've left out part of the story and you don't have good news. But you also cannot overcomplicate the gospel by trying to put all this extra stuff in it. Because once you add to the gospel, what you've said is these two parts are insufficient. Right? Most people don't think about it that way. But when you try to add something to the gospel, what you're really doing is you're saying that what Christ did on the cross was not enough. That we've got to add something to it. And so we try to overcomplicate the gospel. And Paul says, listen... I'm going to clarify this for you, right? And so that's the reason he starts with this two-part gospel. He really starts with verse 1, and he says in verse 1, Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it, and you have taken your stand on it. You see, in the first 14 verses, uh, or first 14 chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul has dealt with a lot of stuff. He's dealt with marriage, he's dealt with spiritual gifts, he's dealt with church discipline, he's dealt with a whole bunch of stuff. And then finally in verse chapter 15, the next to last chapter, he says, now let me bring you back to where we started. Let me bring you back to the essentials. Because if you miss this, then all that other stuff, you're never going to get that. Because if you miss this, this is what is most important. If you miss this part of the story, then none of what I said before is going to make any difference in your life, your marriage, or anything else. Because this is what is essential. This is what the story is. Nothing taken away from it. Nothing added to it. This is the story of Christ. And so we have to clarify the gospel and make sure that it's these two parts. And it's only these two parts. If we lack one of these two parts, like I said, you don't have good news. But if you add to the story, then you don't have good news either. Because you've told Christ what he did was insufficient. I'm going to tell you this morning right now that if what Christ did was insufficient for your salvation, then there is nothing you can do to add to what he already did for you. There is no good news if his good news is not enough for us. And so when we look at the the gospel, it is these two parts. The good news of God, the good news, the gospel that Paul gives us is in verse 3 and 4. And the first part of those two is the death of Christ. Now, most people do not consider death good news. In fact, I can only think of probably two situations where anybody would ever consider death as something good. One of those situations is when someone has done something terribly vile. When someone we would consider evil. When someone has done such an atrocious act, and then if they were allowed to continue, they would continue in that. Right? We would welcome death in that situation because we would say that justice is being served. Or that this is what's needed to provide safety for our society. That peace has to happen. And so for peace to happen, this has to take place. This death is welcomed because the atrocity and the vile acts that this person has committed and will commit it. It will continue to commit. So there are times that we look at that and we say, maybe death is welcomed in this case. All right? There's other times that maybe we look at the end of someone's life and maybe someone who is uh, debilitated and someone who has lived a long life and they're, they're, they're up in age and they are bedridden and they are disabled and, and we get to the point where their quality of life is almost zero. And, and, and I don't know if you've ever sat beside the bedside of someone who's in that situation. They almost welcome death at that point. Right? Not that they want to go through death, but they just want to get it over with. 
And so we're tempted to welcome death in those two extremes when it's going to be a service of justice for that person and for us, or when the person is in such a state of life that they really don't have a quality of life at all. But what do you do with Jesus? Because I can tell you the death of Jesus doesn't fit either one of those. Jesus isn't 90 years old and on a bedridden, he's not bedridden, he's not disabled in any way. In fact, he's in his 30s, his early 30s. He is physically and mentally in the prime of his life when he is crucified. And so we wouldn't welcome death for anybody that's in the prime of their life whose life is cut short. And we definitely wouldn't welcome anybody who hasn't committed, or death for anybody who hasn't committed these atrocious acts. Because when we look at the Gospels, when we look at the story and life of Christ, we don't find anything that would point to a death that was justified for him. In fact, what is death for him was the complete opposite of justice. You see, we don't want the justice of God. We all say we want justice in this world, and we want it in this world, but we don't want justice from God. You know why? Because the justice of this God would not put Christ on the cross. It would make you pay for the sins that you committed. But the justice of God sees the cross of Christ, and it says it's taken care of. You see, the justice of God says uh, there can be a substitute. He's in his early 30s, and there is no justice for him whatsoever. And so Paul writes, he clarifies this gospel, and he says, I pass on to you in verse 3 what is most important that I receive, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You see, there is one reason and one reason only that Christ died. And it wasn't for anything he did. It wasn't because he got old. It wasn't because he made enemies. It was for your sins. One of the writers writes this. He says, Our sins was the reason for Christ's death. He did not die for a political cause. He wasn't an enemy of the state. He wasn't for someone else's envy. Jesus' death was for sin. And he died not as a martyr for a cause, but as an atoning covering for our sins. You see, Jesus died not for his own sins, but he died for us. He died because there was a perfect God who required a perfect standard. And when we didn't meet that standard, he required a perfect sacrifice. And we couldn't meet that sacrifice, but Christ could. And so Christ substitutes himself. He gives himself, not because of his sins, because he had none, but simply because of our sins. And so when Paul makes it clear when he writes to Corinthians later in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, it's only through the death of Christ that we have redemption. It is only through the death of Christ that we have forgiveness. It is only through the death of Christ that we can be adopted and invited back into the family of God. It is only through the death of Christ, that our sins can be taken away, that our sins can be washed away. It is only through the blood of Christ that God can see us and accept us back because of the sacrifice has been taken care of. It is only through His blood that any of that can take place. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't do good enough. You can't be in church enough. You can't read the Bible enough. It is only through the blood of Jesus that we have any hope of being accepted by God ever again. It is His death that brings us redemption. You see, in all of His death was according to Scripture. There are probably two passages that Paul had in mind as he wrote this. The first one is Psalm 22. and Psalm 22 is the suffering servant psalm. And it was written hundreds of years before Christ's death. But I want to read it to you because it lays out perfectly the events of Christ. And for you guys that are familiar with the stories of the Gospels, you're going to hear exactly what happened. But you're going to hear it from a perspective of hundreds of years before it actually happened. Psalm verse, or chapter 22, verse 14 through 18 simply says this, I am being poured out like water. And all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. 
my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. You pierce my hands and my feet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones, and people look and stare at me. They divide my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothes. You see, all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they share that exact same depiction of the cross of Jesus Christ, that as he was on the cross, people stared at him, people mocked him. As he was on the cross, the Roman soldiers are at the foot of it, casting lots, throwing dice to see who's going to get which piece of the garment. As he's hanging on the cross, he is seeing all of this stuff, and he is describing it there hundreds of years beforehand. The other passage that Paul is probably thinking of is very familiar for many of us. Isaiah chapter 15. In Isaiah 53, not only tells us how he suffered, but why he suffered. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 through 6 says this, Yet he himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains. But we in return, or in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punished, or the punishment for our peace was on him, and he was healed, or excuse me, we are healed by his wounds. Finally, verse 6, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquities of us all. You see, the good news of the death of Christ is that your iniquities have been paid for. The good news of the death of Christ is that your peace has been purchased. The good news of the death of Christ is the punishment you deserved has been put on the back of someone else, and by His stripes you are healed. And so we're going to do exactly what Christ commands us to do in this time. We're going to proclaim the Lord's death, and we're going to do it here at communion. And so Paul writes earlier in this passage to to come, and he tells us all these instructions about communion. And he tells you before you do this, to examine yourself so that you don't do this in an unworthy manner. Not that we deserve this, but what he's really saying is make sure you know what this is doing. Make sure you know what this is about. If you're going to proclaim the Lord's death, you need to know that the body was broken. You need to know that the blood was shed and was shed for you. And so we're going to take just a moment. We're going to watch a video and it's going to be a song. It's going to be playing. And I'm just going to invite you to examine yourself. And is this what you believe or is it not? If it is, then we're going to invite you to share in the Lord's Supper. And if it's not, we're just going to ask that you not participate in this moment. So in this moment, I'm going to encourage you to watch this video. And it's going to be that verse, Isaiah 53. By His wounds, we are healed. transgressions he was crushed for our sins the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds by his wounds we are healed he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our sins the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. We are healed by your sacrifice. 
transgressions he was crushed for our sins the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds by his wounds we are healed by his wounds by his writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. He gave thanks and he broke it. So I want to invite you to go ahead and join me. Uh, if you've got the little communion cups, there's a little plastic wrap on the top. I invite you to join with me in prayer, and then we will take it together. God, we are so thankful for the body that you gave. God, the body that was broken for us. God, the body that took our place, took our pain, and took our suffering. God, the body that bore our stripes so that we could be healed by you. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul goes on to say, And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. So if you'll go ahead and you take your cup and open that up as best you can.
And he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim the Lord's death. But that's just one part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John MacArthur once wrote that a crucified Messiah would be no Messiah at all. A Messiah left in the grave would be no Messiah at all. A Savior in the grave would be no Savior at all. So praise God the story doesn't end with Jesus on the cross or even in the grave. That praise God that the gospel is complete not because of the death but because of his resurrection. You see the second part of the gospel, what makes it the best news is not only that there is death for our sins but there is a resurrection to prove that there is sin and that there is victory over that. And so the gospel is incomplete. It is useless without the resurrection. You see without the resurrection there could be no evidence of Christ's claim. Without the resurrection, we could not trust the words of Christ. Without the resurrection, we could not trust any of the words that God has spoken or the Bible has spoken. Without the resurrection, there is no proof that our sins are paid for. In fact, they wouldn't be paid for and we would still be in our sins and our faith would be worthless. You see, the resurrection is not an option for our faith and for our salvation. It is essential to our faith and to our salvation. It is essential to the gospel. And so that's why Paul includes it in verse 4 as the second part of the gospel. Remember, his goal is to bring clarity to the gospel without anything left out and without anything added to it. And so he doesn't leave this out. In verse 4, he says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. You see, the buried part there is just the evidence of his death. And the resurrection... 
this is the proof of that. You see, he's going to give evidence of the resurrection starting in verse 5 through 8. We won't read through those, but he gives this whole list of people who have seen Christ since his resurrection. And he says, listen, if you don't believe my words about Christ being raised, then go talk to Peter. He saw him. Go talk to James. He saw him. In fact, he appeared to over 500 people. Most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. If you don't believe this is factual, if you don't believe that I'm telling you the truth, go talk to them. And so he provides this evidence for the resurrection, and he provides this one little sentence about the death and the burial of Christ as evidence for the death of Christ. You see, to have the full gospel, we've got to have the death of Christ that paid for our sins, but we've got to have the resurrection of Christ that proves that that is the case. We have to have the resurrection of Christ that proves there is something beyond this, that there is a future and there's a hope. You see, at the cross, we see the mercy of God because at the cross, we don't get it, we don't get the punishment that we deserve. That is the mercy of God. But at the resurrection, we see the, the grace of God because we get an inheritance. We get a, a, a promise. We get a victory that we did not earn and we cannot deserve. That is the grace of God. We get a future and a hope. We get an assurance of eternal life that we couldn't earn for ourselves. That is the grace of God. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is the mercy of, cross, of the cross at the cross, mercy of Christ at the cross and the resurrection and the grace of God through that resurrection. And Paul makes it clear that just like the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ was according to the scripture. There's probably two or maybe three verses that Paul was looking at and thinking about in this passage. And he probably Hosea chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, when it says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us, and He will bind up our wounds. Verse 2, He will receive us after two days, and on the third day He will rise us up so that we can live in His presence. Maybe Paul was thinking of the promise made to Psalm 16, verse 10. And he says, For you will not abandon me in Sheol, or the place of the dead. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. Or maybe he's gone back to the passage of Isaiah, because when we started with Isaiah chapter 53, we focused on the first part of it. And the suffering servant who talks about the death and the reason for his death, but see, that's not the end of chapter 53 of Isaiah. It ends with that same suffering servant being victorious. It ends with that same suffering servant being reigning and, and having victory. You see, the verse 12 is the last of Isaiah chapter 53, and it says, Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as full, because he has submitted himself to death. You see, the servant that gave himself up to death now receives a reward. He receives a portion. He receives the spoils. He gets the victory that was promised to him. You see, there would be no point in giving victories or spoils to someone who is dead. The end of Isaiah 53 requires a resurrection for the one who submitted himself to death. You see, the good news of Christ, it doesn't end with a Savior who died for your sins. It ends with a Savior who conquered your greatest enemy. It ends with a clear declaration that death could not hold him in the grave, could not keep him. It ends with a clear declaration that death has been swallowed up by victory. And as one author put it, it ends with the cross as the payment of our sins and an empty tomb as the receipt. It is all the proof you need that the debt has been paid in full. You see, the gospel has to have two parts. It has to have the death, but it has to have the resurrection as well. And you cannot take away from one of those, and you cannot add anything to those. And so the question for all of us this morning is, what do we do with this gospel? 
How do we respond to this gospel? And so Paul makes it clear that the two-part gospel should be met with a three-part response. And everyone sitting in this room and everyone watching online, you should be challenged by one of these three responses. You should be at one of these points in your life being challenged to move on either to a second point or deeper into that point. You see, the first response is very simple. The first response of the gospel is that you need to receive it. It is the very first and the simple response to the gospel that Paul gives. The death and the resurrection of Christ that is useless for you if you don't receive it. It is there and it's available. The question is, will you receive it? Look back with me in verse 1. Paul writes, Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel that I proclaim to you. You received it and you have taken your stand on it. We'll get to the stand part in a second. But before we do that, let's focus on this idea of received it. Because Paul uses this beautiful, very interesting word for receiving it. He uses this word that can be used two different ways. The first way it can be used is kind of metaphorical. The first way it can be used is that you receive or you accept or you acknowledge something as fact. And so what Paul is begging you to do and what we are begging you to do this morning is to receive the death and the resurrection of Christ as fact. Not as a myth, not as a fairy tale, not as a story that somebody made up, not as an inspiration or a philosophy that somebody came up with. That these two historical events, that Christ physically died, that Christ physically rose, these are historical facts that happened. And it doesn't matter what you think about them. It doesn't matter what you believe about them. These are facts. And if you cannot accept them as facts, then you cannot receive the gospel of Christ. You must accept as fact the death and resurrection of Christ. But not only must you accept them as facts, you've got to accept the reason for them as well. You see, the reason for Christ's death, we've already talked about it, was not to give you some motivational speech. The reason of Christ's death was not to give you some philosophy of how to live your life better so that you could have a good life now. The reason for Christ's death was because you are a sinner. Because God gave you a standard and me a standard and we didn't meet that standard. The reason that Christ had to die was because someone had to pay the price for our mismark, for our mismanagement, for our mistakes and all the times that we turned our back on God. Somebody had to pay for that and Christ does it. You see, to accept Him, to acknowledge His death as fact is to accept the reason for it, which means I must come to Him and say, God, I am a sinner and I can't do anything about it myself. But Jesus paid it all. You see, if we're going to acknowledge the fact of the cross, we've got to accept the reason for the cross. And it wasn't for a political stance. It wasn't for any of that. It was because Michael Rakes needed a Savior and because I couldn't do anything by myself. It's because Michael Rakes was destined to hell and I couldn't do anything about it. It's because Michael Rakes was separated from God and I couldn't do anything about it except plead the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's telling you to do this morning, to receive it, not just as fact, but as the reason because this is what it took to bring you back into the fellowship of God. The other part and the beautiful part of this word, and I love the reason he uses this word so much so, is because the other picture of receiving means that you reach out and you take hold of something and you pull it into you so tightly that you're holding on to it so tightly. In fact, you are holding on to it so tightly that somebody looking from the outside would believe that, that whatever you're holding is part of you. That they literally cannot tell. There's no gap. There's no separation between you and whatever object you're holding. That that literally there's no space between it. And so when someone looks at you, they can't tell where you end and whatever that thing is begins. Understand what I'm saying? That the identity of one thing and the identity of the other are so infused together that when people from the outside look, they only see one thing. They don't see two separate things. 
You see, for some of us, this is how we need to receive the gospel because this is what it looks like. This is the offer to us this morning. The body that is broken for us, the blood that is shed for us, and what Paul is saying is you need to receive it. You need to reach out and grab a hold of that gospel truth as truth and know it's fact, and you need to hold on to it so tight that when people look at you, they can't tell where Jesus ends and you begin. When people look at you, they don't see the identity of Jesus and identity. They see one identity, and you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. It's a beautiful picture of what the gospel does for us because it's not just knowing it, it is living it out, each and every day of our life. That it is His identity becomes our identity. When God looks at us, He sees Him. When God looks at Him, He sees us. And guess what? The rest of the world should see the same thing. We don't have a separate identity when we receive the gospel. We are in Him and He is in us. And so the first response of the gospel is simply that. To receive it. To take hold of it. To grasp it so tightly that it becomes infused into who you are. That there is no difference between where Christ ends and where you begin. To receive the gospel is to believe it and be so infused in it that it becomes your identity. And when you're that close, that you begin to be transformed by the gospel allows the second response. And that is to stand on the gospel. You see, there's a confidence that comes with the gospel that cannot be found anywhere else. Yesterday, we were sitting at home and we were decorating some Easter eggs. And um, I had some very musical people in my family that love music. And uh, they pulled up some old hymns. And, and they, I don't know if you guys like melodies or not, but I, I'm not a huge fan of melodies. Because just when I get into one song, they switch it to another. All right, And I'm a little slow when it comes to songs. All right, And I like to finish one and then go back to the others. But my family likes these melodies where they'll throw like 15 songs all in one and then you, like, you just keep switching. So that we were listening to these melodies of old hymns and, and, and some of these hymns that I grew up with, some of them you grew up in, and one of them came on that, that just kind of shook me. One of them came on that just kind of took me back to all the sunrise Easter services that I'd ever gone to as a kid and it was simply because he lives. And some of you may know that song, but let me give you the, uh, one of the verses in the chorus. It says, Then one day... I'll cross that river, and I'll fight life's final war with pain. And then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the light of glory, and I'll know He reigns. And then the chorus, Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future, and life is worth the living just because He lives. You see, Paul makes it clear that we stand on the gospel even in uncertain times. We stand on the gospel even in the face of death. That regardless of how crazy 2020 and 2021 has been, regardless of how much this world is shaken and shattered and fallen apart, we don't change because we stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says it in verse 1 that you received it, and, and that you took your stand on it. And then we go to the very end of the chapter, verse 58. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast and movable. Stand firm. Don't be shaken. When times are uncertain, be rooted in the resurrection of Christ. When times are difficult and things are swaying back and forth and you don't know what the next day holds, be rooted in the resurrection and the victory of Christ. Even in the face of death, your biggest enemy that nobody can defeat except Christ, be rooted in the resurrection of Christ. Don't be shaken. Don't be moved. Don't be afraid because death is swallowed up in victory. Because for us who have received the gospel of Christ, death has no victory and death has no sting. In fact, we can join and be rooted in the resurrection of the gospel because in verse 58 it says to give thanks to the God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid because you have a God who's overcome. 
Don't be afraid. Stand firm on the gospel. Be rooted in the resurrection. You don't have to fear tomorrow or even if tomorrow is going to come because you're rooted in the resurrection. You don't have to fear what could happen to you tomorrow because you know who holds the future and you know who holds your hand. You don't have to be afraid. You can stand fast and be immovable. You can be rooted in the resurrection because His resurrection proves that you don't have anything to worry about because He's already done it. He's already defeated it. He's already paid the price. All you have to do is stand on His victory. It's not yours. You don't have to fight it. He's already done it. Be steadfast and immovable. And finally, there's one last response. And for some of us, this is where we need to focus. For some of us, this is the challenge for us this morning. The last response to the gospel is not only do we have to receive it, not only do we have to stand on it, but we have to labor in it. You see, God doesn't give us the gospel to keep it to ourselves. He gives us the gospel to share it and to show it to the rest of the world. I'm going to go back to the very last verse, and we'll finish with this verse, verse 58, starting from the beginning. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, I want to be clear. He didn't tell you to work for, and He didn't tell you to labor for your salvation. Because all of that was taken care of when Christ said it is finished on the cross. You're not working to add anything to it. You're not trying to gain anything extra by it. All of your work, all the work that was taken for salvation, it was done. He simply says that you're working not for your salvation, but in your salvation. We are working and we're serving, not because we're trying to earn God's grace because He's already given it to us, but we're working and we're serving because of God's grace. We're working in response to the sacrifice that He gave to us. We're working in response because He gave everything for us. But I want you to notice what the verse says. It doesn't say just do the Lord's work. It doesn't just say show up for church on Sunday or Wednesday. It doesn't say just show up and read your Bible when you want to. He says always excelling, always abounding, always doing the Lord's work. You see, there's this consistent, continual action that has taken place that you should always be growing in your faith. You should always be growing in your knowledge of Him. You should always be trying to learn more about Him, be closer to Him. You should always be transformed by who He is and what He said. You should always be sharing the gospel and looking for opportunities to serve. And it doesn't just say work. He says that you are to labor, which means you're to work hard, which means that you're to exhaust all of your strength. For His kingdom. You are to hold nothing back. Why? Because He held nothing back from you. Is that your response to the gospel this morning? Can you honestly say that you have labored for the kingdom of God? You have exhausted. You are like Paul and been poured out. And there is nothing left in you because there was nothing left of Him. That you held nothing back because He held nothing back from you. For some of us this morning, our response to the gospel is you need to receive it. You need to take hold of it. It needs to become your identity. For some of us, we need to be steadfast and we need to stand on it. We need to know that we don't have to be shaken by the changes of this world that are going on or what this tomorrow holds. That we can be immovable because of the truth of the gospel and the life that lies ahead. But for some of us, our biggest challenge is not to receive it, not to stand on it. We got that. But for some of us, our challenge is that when we get up out of these seats, when we leave our couch or our living room, wherever it is, that we begin working and laboring for the gospel of Christ. Because He didn't hold it back from you. And we shouldn't hold it back from anybody else. How do you need to respond to the gospel? To the death of the one who died for you and the one who showed you that He has the victory. Let's pray together this morning.